Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. I'm so glad you're with us today as we begin a new series, a Christmas series, entitled The Incarnation. Inside your bulletin, you'll find an outline of where I'm headed today. And over the next few weeks, we're going to give you a number of reasons why that matters. I mean, sometimes I'm asked by people who say, well, you know, don't you ever get tired every year as a pastor of talking about Christmas? And I go, no. I mean, it's Jesus' birthday. I don't get tired of celebrating my kids' birthdays. And uh, I hope they don't get tired of celebrating mine. (laughs) I I kind of like that. We make a big deal out of birthdays at our house because we're always grateful that God has blessed us with our children and blessed us with each other. And um, we are super grateful as Christians that God sent his son into the world. I want to give you in a series five reasons why that matters. And the first one today is because Jesus came into the world, we can understand what God is like. We can. God isn't just a God way off in the cosmos somewhere. He's a God who came to us, became one of us, so we can understand him. Now that's significant, and that's worth celebrating. I want to have a word of prayer, and we're going to jump right in. Heavenly Father, I thank you for allowing us to be here today. I thank you for Christmas time. I thank you that we can celebrate the good news that you came into our world with skin on, so we can understand you. You spoke out loud, and you showed us what you're like. And today, Lord, I pray that we will meditate on this a little bit, and you'll use this message to get our hearts ready for Christmas. Please speak, Lord. Move me out of the way. Teach us whatever you want us to know about who you are. In the name of Christ, I pray these things. Amen. If you need a pen, by the way, just um, raise your hand. One of the ushers will be glad to bring one to you. I want to welcome the folks who are worshiping with us via video at Pike Road and at Cloverdale and Wetumpka. I was in Wetumpka myself last week at our uh, site there, and it was really fun to see who's on the other side of the screen over there. And uh, it was uh, a lot of people come to me and go, wow, you're bigger in person than you are on the screen. Anyway, um, <laughs> that was interesting. But anyway, uh, today we're going to um, talk about the incarnation. In fact, this whole series is about this. And point one uh, talks about what the incarnation means. We celebrate the birth of Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what incarnation means, is to put skin on. And the Bible tells us that God put skin on, became one of us. Here's how John describes it in John 1. Here are a few verses. In the beginning, the Word, and please circle the Word. I'll explain that in a minute. The Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Now, it might seem unusual for us that when John, one of Jesus' disciples, is describing Jesus, um, it might seem unusual that he would use the term, the Word, to refer to Jesus. Well, in his day, that wasn't unusual at all. Uh, The ancient Greek word for that is L-O-G-O-S, logos, or logos, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But what it meant was simply this, to the Greeks it meant the reason, the mind behind the whole universe that makes that holds the whole universe, the rationality that holds the whole universe together. To the Hebrews, the Logos was the word of God himself because the Bible tells us that God spoke and the world came into being. In fact, um, that's what it tells us in Psalm 33, 6, that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. To the Hebrews also, when a prophet would receive uh, a vision and instructions to go tell a king or tell God's chosen people, the Israelites, 
It was always described this way, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, or the word of the Lord came to Hosea, or came to a prophet, and he would say, this is what the Lord says, this is his word. When David would refer to the scriptures, he said that, how can a young man stay pure? By hiding his word in his heart. And so the word was God to the Hebrews, and the word was everything that held the whole universe together to the Greeks, and John was appealing to both of them when he wrote this. And he said to the Greeks, you know that rationality that holds the whole universe together? Well, that's a, that's a person. That's God. And he came into our world so we could know him. And to the Hebrews, he said, the word, the one who created, the creator God of the universe, he became one of us and walked the earth with us so we could understand him. Now, because of this, because Jesus is God in the flesh, we can understand what God is like. We can understand him. I mean, this is quite something. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God is himself God. The one and only Son is, his, is himself God and is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. This is John going on a little later in that same chapter. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son is God himself. And he's revealed God to us. And if you'd underline the word revealed... This is how we know who God is. Jesus revealed God to us. When we see Jesus, we see God. And that's the note in your outline. Jesus is fully God and fully human. This is part of our faith. We accept this by faith. He wasn't part God and part human. We're not talking about Hercules, a demigod or something like that. We're talking about Jesus being fully God and fully human at the same time. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body, Colossians 2.9. Paul also wrote in Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Moses had longed to see God when God was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land, and God says, you can't look at me with human eyes, Moses. It would kill you. It would be more than you could stand. My glory is too brilliant for you. In fact, Moses was taken and put in a cleft of the rock, and God put his hand over the cleft and passed by, and he said, I'll let you see my back. And I'll pronounce my glory as I pass by on a mountainside. When Moses came down the mountain, his face was glowing. The glory was so radiant. And that's the closest anybody had ever gotten. And then John said, but we actually got to see God up close because God became one of us. He put skin on. Philip, another of Jesus' disciples, uh, was talking to Jesus one day. And John records this for us in John 14. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? I'm God in the flesh. And when you look at Jesus, you understand everything the Hebrews said, that God created everything with a word. And Jesus said, I am that word. I'm the one who created the world. And that's why he could calm the seas and still the wind. The creator God, the one who made the wind, controls the wind. The God who made us knows us, and he knew what was in people's hearts. He knew how much sin and pain we had, and he came to do something about it. And the disciples marveled at this. In fact, in 1 John 1, not John 1, this is not in your outline. Here are the first couple of verses in 1 John 1, later on in the New Testament, later on in John's life. And he said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, 
This is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it. And John said, we saw God in the flesh. With our own eyes, we heard him with our own ears, we touched him. And this is what we testify to. And we want you to know this. This is great news. And so the reason we celebrate the birth of Christ, because this is God in the flesh, we can actually know what God is like, because God became one of us and spoke out loud and demonstrated with his own hands what God is like. We know how he thinks about sinners because Jesus met sinners and he had compassion on them. We know, as we said, as I said just a second ago, Jesus has control over nature because he demonstrated that. And we know that Jesus has conquered death because he rose from the dead. And if that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? Amen. amen. So he's fully God and fully human at the same time. And this was all done so we could understand him. Now, Billy Graham is famous for an example that kind of, or an illustration that helps make sense of this. Uh, he often quoted this, and he said there was a young boy who had an ant farm. And he loved to play with the ants in his room and a little glass case, and he watched them dig tunnels and other things. And he and his dad also loved to go out for walks in the evening because next to their subdivision, there was another subdivision being put in. and all kinds of homes were being built, and they watched the framers frame a house and then put a roof on and other things, and they loved to go out there every evening and kind of watch the trucks rumble by and other things hauling the, the rock and the cement. And One day, as they were walking along the service entrance there to this new subdivision, the boy noticed there was an anthill. It was just right beside the road that these heavy trucks were taking every day. And um, he noticed that the tires of a cement mixer, for instance, came within inches of just crushing the anthill flat, and so he ran over and he tried to pick up the ants and move them off to the side and get them out of the way because he was certain that it wouldn't be long before a truck ran over them. He wanted to rescue the ants, and so he would pick up the ants and move them, but the ants didn't understand. They ran right back. In fact, some of the ants even bit him, and he crushed some others by accident. And his dad said, son, they don't know what you're trying to do. Let's go on home. So they went home, and that evening, the little boy didn't eat much of dinner. He was real quiet, went to bed, and an hour after his dad thought he was asleep, the little boy came downstairs and came and talked to him. He said, Dad, is there any way I can become an ant? Because if I could become an ant, then I could speak the way ants speak, and I could tell them about the trucks. I could tell them about the danger, and if they don't move, they're going to get crushed. I could show them the way to safety, and they would understand me. His dad said, no, there's no way you can become an ant. But what if God became one of us? And he spoke out loud, and he showed us what God was like so we could understand God's love for us, and we could understand God's plan for us, and he showed us and modeled what it was like to be God. God in the flesh. Well, then we could follow him, and that's what Jesus asked us to do. And so I want to give you four things in the rest of this outline, four revelations that we have because Jesus became God in the flesh things we can now understand about God. First of all, because Jesus is God in the flesh, we understand that God loves us. We understand that. God demonstrates his love for us this way. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The disciples saw this with their own eyes. They witnessed him die on the cross. They saw him suffer and die, not for his own sins, but for yours and mine. He never sinned. But he paid a penalty that you and I could never pay. They saw him have compassion on notorious sinners, prostitutes, drunks, thieves. 
and proclaimed forgiveness to them if they would repent of their sins, and people came by the thousands. They saw him also rebuke people who were closing the door of heaven in people's faces because they were judgmental and wouldn't proclaim God's love. And so because Jesus is God in the flesh, we can understand what God's love looks like. John also wrote this in 1 John 4. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And this is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God loves us. And the disciples knew it because they'd seen it. I mean, when a young couple comes to me and they're thinking about getting married, they say, well, you know, is it too soon? I go, well, you've got to make sure that you've been uh, dating each other for at least four seasons, baseball, football, hunting, and Christmas. You know I mean? You've got to get through those four seasons. And then you'll know if the other person loves you or not. You'll see if they're selfish. You'll see if they're going to put their own interests first with your own eyes, with your own ears. You'll see. And for years, the disciples hung around Jesus, and they saw with their own eyes, they witnessed it. They witnessed Jesus die. They witnessed him rise again. They witnessed his great love and compassion. And this is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. There's a life application for you and me in all this. Dear friends, and I'm just quoting John here again. I just went to the next verse. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. I mean, if Christmas time is ever a time when we should demonstrate that, certainly is, but we should do this all year round. God loved us so much that he paid the penalty for our sins. He sacrificed everything. I mean, you don't have to tell a parent to sacrifice for their kids when the parent loves their children, when the parents love their children. And they want to do that. I mean, it's hard as a parent if you have to stay up with a sick child all night and have to go to work the next day. I mean, it's really hard. But you ask the parent, you go, well... Did you really need to do that? Well, of course I did. Don't you resent that? No, I love my child. And Jesus demonstrated that for the whole human race. And he wants us to know what God is like, that God is love. And because Jesus is God in the flesh, we understand that he loves us, and he wants us then to treat each other like brothers and sisters. So, well, look, I loved you, now love each other with that same kind of love. Point B, because Jesus is God in the flesh, not only do we know that God loves us, we also know that God keeps his promises. We know that God keeps his promises. I mean, sometimes we feel like God doesn't. Sometimes we just feel like, you know, that God, we, we pray, but God's not really listening. It's just kind of going through the motions. I guess it's some kind of religious activity. But God wants us to know he keeps his promises. A couple of promises that were made 700 years before Jesus was born are recorded for you in your outline. Matthew 1 um, records when, uh, Je when Jesus was born, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph was Jesus' earthly father. Uh, and he was engaged to Mary when Mary was visited by an angel and told that she would become pregnant through a miraculous means. The Holy Spirit would come upon her and place a baby in her womb. When she told Joseph that she was pregnant because God had placed a baby in her womb, Joseph thought she'd gone nuts, and he was going to put her away quietly. But an angel appeared to him in a dream and said this, Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Jesus, by the way, means the Lord saves. That's what the name means. For he will save the people from their sins. 
And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. That's the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 7:14. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And for seven centuries, people have been debating where this child would be born and who this child would be. And God kept his promise. And just as he had said, a baby was born to a virgin. And the angel told Joseph, that's Jesus. Also, about the same time, the prophet Micah, this is 700 years before Jesus was born, wrote this in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. When the wise men came to Jerusalem looking for Jesus, they went to the palace and asked King Herod where the Messiah would be born. They knew there were prophecies about a Messiah and a star in the sky had led them to Jerusalem. When they got there, King Herod didn't know, and so he asked the scribes and the priests, the experts in the Bible and the Old Testament, and they said, well, this is from Micah 5 too. It was written 700 years ago. They'd be born in Bethlehem, and that's where the wise men went. That's how they knew to go there. Because God kept his promise. Now I tell, tell you that today. It's significant that we celebrate the birth of Christ because we can understand that God loves us. We can also understand that God keeps his promises. And his promises to us are precious. One of the promises he made us is that when we die, for those who come to him, we will have life everlasting in his name. If that's good news to you, would you say amen? amen. Now look, I've been a part of, I've been met with two grieving families over this Thanksgiving weekend. One of them dealing with the loss of a 16-year-old boy. The other dealing with the loss of a 69-year-old grandmother whom they love very much. And in both situations, with both families, I proclaimed to them the promises of Scripture that Jesus told us that he loved us so much he came into the world to die on the cross for our sins. Both the young boy and the grandmother were both believers and put their faith in Christ. And I can proclaim to them with no hesitation they are alive and well, living in heaven with brand new bodies that will never die again in the presence of Jesus. Now those are promises that we have through Christ, that he died on the cross to take away our sins. He conquered death, so even if our mortal bodies die, we will live forever in brand new bodies that will never die. I can proclaim this with absolute certainty because these are promises of Jesus. Look at the top of your outline on the second page. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20. Would you read that with me, please? For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. This matters to you and me. And what I could remind both those families of this is this. If God's promises aren't any good, well, then why even bother to go to worship? Why even bother to read the Bible? But if God's promises are good, and they are, because Jesus did rise from the dead, Jesus did come just as he said, well, then all the other promises are true too. Here's a life application. Here's another big promise. Because God kept his promises to send Christ the first time, we can trust that Jesus will keep his promise to come again soon to take his children home. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples, he said, uh, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. When everything's ready, I'll come and get you so you can be with me always where I am. And Peter, years later, as Peter became an old man, people were laughing about this. It had been 30, 40 years since Jesus had died and risen, and they said, well, I thought you said Jesus was coming again. What about that? And here's what Peter said. I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, 
mocking the truth, following their own desires, and they say, what happened to that promise that Jesus is coming again? The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. My friends, Jesus is coming again. Heaven is real. And we know all these things because God kept his promises about Jesus coming the first time. We can be certain that he's coming again soon when everything's ready. And he's given us a command to be faithful and to serve him until he comes again. And this is what we must do. Now, just as there was no, I mean, that first Christmas, there were no reindeer out on the lawns of people in Bethlehem, and there was no Black Friday sales in Jerusalem that Friday, okay, before Jesus was born. There won't be any big signs that uh, announce when Jesus is coming again. He said it's going to happen when no one expects it. He said he will come, and we need to be ready. We get ready by coming to him and by surrendering our lives to him, and allowing him to guide our lives according to his plan. Because his promises are true. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, we know God loves us. Jesus demonstrated that. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, we know God keeps his promises. Here's a third revelation we know because Jesus is God in the flesh. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, we understand that God wants to save us, not condemn us. Not condemn us. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That's John 3.17, right after John 3.16. Jesus lived out what had been written in the Old Testament that people had heard, but they hadn't really understood. This is Psalm 103. David wrote, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He's removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how weak we are, and he remembers we are only dust. And I put this in here because I cannot tell you how many times as a pastor I have people come into my office and they go, uh, you know, they've had a, a bad economic situation, a bad year in their business, or they got a bad diagnosis, or they're having problems in a relationship, or something else has gone wrong in their life, and they come in and go, yeah, this is really hard for me, but I know God's just getting even with me for, for my days in college. And I go, what? Yeah, I mean, that's the way God works. You go along, tooling along with your life, not bothering anybody, then all of a sudden, wham, God gets even with you for something you did years ago. That's just the way God is. He's up there in heaven just waiting for you to mess up, and then, bam, he's going to get even with you. I mean, people tell me this all the time. I go, that's the way you think God is? And they go, yeah. And then we read these verses right here. I go, does that sound like the God you're talking about? And they go, no. I mean, this is why it's significant that God came in the flesh. God didn't demonstrate that at all to people. In fact, he demonstrated to lost sinners that he wanted to forgive them. He demonstrated to people who needed help that he had compassion and wanted to help them. He demonstrated that anyone who would come to, them, come to him, he would love them forgive them, and restore them. It's so important that we embrace this. It's one of the big reasons we celebrate Jesus coming into our world, because now we can understand what God is like. Those aren't just nice words in Psalm 103. That's the way God is. 
He is our loving Heavenly Father. He wants to forgive us. He wants to restore us. Can we just come to him? See, one of the most successful lies of the devil is this. First of all, the devil tempts us to sin. And then secondly, once we get caught up in sin, then he lies to us and said, God will never forgive you. Don't go to Jesus, the one place you can't go if you've been in sin. Don't go to church. They'll hate you there. God will condemn you. I mean, you've got to understand, I invite people to come to church all the time. And I hear this. I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard this. Oh, I can't come to church, preacher. If I come to church, God will strike me with lightning. And I go, what, you think his aim's bad? He can't strike you right now? <laughs> you think he only knows where we're standing on Sunday mornings? And they go, oh, I never thought about that. I go, look, if God wanted to condemn you, if God wanted to destroy us, he'd have destroyed us a long time ago. But praise God, he has mercy on us, and he loves us, and he sent his own son to pay a penalty that I deserve. And if you have come here today, and somehow you have bought into that terrible lie, that if we sin and mess up, we can't come to Jesus because he hates us and he is just he's just waiting to smack us down see it as a lie come to Christ confess your sins be forgiven today and that's the life application I want to make from this because Jesus came to us we can now come to him without fear so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God and there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most and if you'd underline when we need it most, not when we've earned it. It's grace when we need it most. If you have blown it, come to Jesus. If you want grace and mercy, come to Jesus. If you want a brand new life, come to Jesus. And that's what he told people. Come to me. If you are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you comfort for your soul. And it grieved him when people wouldn't come. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God and there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Would you read that with me, please? So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Please mark this verse in your Bible. Remember it. The next time you have a friend say, oh, I can't come to church. God will never forgive me. I've done too much. No. This is why Jesus came. And this is why it's so significant that he came. He demonstrated that. We can understand this. The disciples said, we saw it with our own eyes. In fact, they were constantly asking Jesus, Jesus, are you really going to hang around with these people? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, we even come to, him, come to the disciples and go, why does Jesus hang around with such scum? And Jesus said, well, I came to save sinners, not people who think they're good enough already. Why do you think I came? Jesus is God in the flesh. And it matters because now we can understand that God wants to save us, not condemn us. A fourth reason it's important that Jesus came in the flesh or a fourth thing that's revealed out of this is because Jesus is God in the flesh, we understand that God has taken the initiative in building a relationship with us. Jesus went first. You can put, if that helps, Jesus went first. See, love always goes first. I mean, if you love someone and there's hard feelings between the two of you and you love them, you call them up and say, hey, look, I don't like this. Can we sit down and bury the hatchet here? Love goes first. When you're wrong, you apologize because you love the other person. Say, look, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I was a jerk. I've done that. 
many times, by the way, with my wife and my kids and others that I love because I want a relationship with them. And if you love someone when they apologize, you welcome them back and say, well, well sure. I'm so sorry you got to forgive me. I forgive you. Come on. We want to be together again. This is the heart of the Father. This is what God demonstrated to us. He said, I'll go first. Paul reflected on this. This is an amazing passage from Romans 5. And Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Love goes first, and Jesus demonstrated that. You and I don't have to climb to the top of Mount Everest. We don't have to swim to the bottom of the ocean. We don't have to crawl on our knees for a thousand miles begging God to forgive us. In fact, he came when people weren't even looking for him. He came and died on the cross for people who mocked him and spit on him. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he came into the world and became one of us so he could die for us. And all this is made plain through the incarnation. That's why it matters that we celebrate Christmas every year. This is a big deal. And I want to remind us that God took the initiative. So what's the life application for you and me? Well, since God has taken the initiative, all we need to do is respond. All we need to do is respond. As God's fellow workers, we urge you to receive God's, uh, not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation. If you and I get a gift this Christmas mailed to us and the uh, delivery man delivers it at the door, it's all in a nice wrapper, it's sitting on the front porch, doesn't do any good until you and I open it. The gift can be given, but I have to receive it. Christ died on the cross for our sins. My part is to acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need this. Christ conquered death once and for all, rose from the grave on Easter Sunday morning. He was like us in every way, except he didn't sin. That's why he could pay the penalty for you and me. He knows what it's like to live. He knows what it's as one of us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to die. And he conquered death once and for all. And he said, if you follow me, you'll have life eternal, forgiveness of your sins, and I'll send my Holy Spirit to you, and he will empower you to become a person that God has always wanted you to be. And Jesus demonstrated all that. And the whole point was, will you come? And so at the beginning of this series, we wanted to start out with this. What's so wonderful is about the incarnation is you and I can understand what God is like. God is love, not condemnation. He's love. God took the initiative. We don't have to earn his favor. We just have to repent. And God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. I hope this message today will help us ponder a little bit about why Christmas is so significant. And I don't want, want us to miss it. With all the shopping and parties and other things, let's not forget what Christmas is truly all about. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the incarnation. And I thank you, Lord, that this isn't just some dry theology that 
is stuck away in seminary classes for a few people to understand. This matters. Lord, if you loved us, then you want us to love each other. Because you became one of us, you understand us. And we can understand you. Because you died on the cross for our sins, our sins can be forgiven. And Lord, you demonstrated you have great mercy on the people who sin the most. The only people you had a hard time with, Lord, were the people who thought they were good enough already and were judging others. In a moment of silence right now, if you've been running from God, would you run toward him? Would you turn around and say, God, forgive me? I need forgiveness. I'm a sinner. And would you pray for a friend or a loved one who's far from God and running the wrong way, that they would turn around and understand that Jesus loves them? That Christmas time would open their eyes to God's great generosity and his great love? Oh, Father, I pray that during all the hustle and bustle of Christmas, during the times we have get-togethers and office parties and a hundred other things going on, Lord, that we would not forget what it's all about. I thank you, Lord, you came into this world with skin on and lived among us. I thank you, Lord, that John and the other disciples saw you and heard you and they wrote down what you said. I thank you, Lord, that we can each have a personal relationship with you, and I pray that we would treasure that more than anything else. We thank you for Jesus. In his strong name, together we pray. Amen.